Welcome to the Conversions Podcast, where we discuss conversion rate optimization and the latest tips, technologies, and actionable strategies that you can actually use to get more of your website's visitors to take action. And now, your host, Francis Teo. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Conversions Podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, a quick shout out to people who have left us iTunes reviews. We have a five-star review from Chinchilla who says, I'm not a conversion rate expert, but I feel like if I carry on listening to this podcast, I might just become one. Thanks for the kind words. If you like what we've been doing here at the Conversions Podcast, please do leave us a review on iTunes. That will help us get even more guests and listeners so that we can continue to bring you the best strategies in conversion optimization today. To leave us a review, just go to conversionspodcast.com slash review and you'll be automatically redirected to our page on iTunes. Looking forward to hearing from you guys. Now on with today's episode. Today we have with us Carsten Loon. Carsten is an experienced conversion rate optimization and landing page optimization specialist for Adcore APS, an optimization agency based in Denmark. He approaches conversion rate optimization through understanding human behavior through a combination of neuroscience, psychology, and social science. Welcome to the podcast today, Carsten. Well, thank you, Francis. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a bit more about how you got into conversion optimization? Yeah, well, um, actually, when I was going through university, um, I got uh, a job, a part-time job in a company that, uh, that was distributing uh, loans and um, halfway through it or something like that, there was an opening in the marketing department uh, and it was very young at the time and I just uh, jumped for it. And uh, w- what's funny about it is, is that uh, the process that uh, we went through in the next couple of years were actually very similar to conversion rate optimization, although this was an offline company sending out letters to uh, to already existing customers offering them loans and what we did was that we optimized the processes around these letters sending them out we uh, tested different colors we tested copy and we actually made uh, significant changes to this concept through the years and what was really interesting was that in a, uh, I don't know, but in, in banks and in financial companies, uh, it's not the marketing department that is, uh, that is king, that is uh, the statistical department. So we had uh, really, really interesting fights between the marketing and the statistical departments about how, what was actually the best way to go. So also through that, I got a very big and profound understanding to what statistics can do to improve one's uh, business. And well, this company wasn't very online oriented and I've always been interested in online. And through about it was 2008, 2009, conversion rate optimization started to, uh, to uh, peak out the communities around and I, I got interested because again it was very much sort of the same as I was working with just online and uh, yeah it just it's evolved from there of course it was most interesting that um, online you could get these results instantly or at least faster than sending out uh, 50,000 letters and waiting them to return and then afterwards doing the uh, statistical analysis to get the 
what uh, the statistical variance and all that. But that that drew me actually directly into the to the conversion rate optimization. Oh, that's a quite an interesting story. And basically, you have a very analytical background. I think that's a really good start into op- optimization. Yeah. Well, well, before that, I've uh, always been totally into communication and I was always the ones in in school that was just very much interested in commercials and things like that. How message was uh, sent and perceived and, and things like that, even before I even knew what those things were. So I've always been interested in communication first and then being very data-driven, very data-minded. That was actually a very good match. Awesome, awesome. So could you tell us what's your overall strategy and process you use for increasing conversions on websites? Yeah, well, we use an iterative process here at Echo, and it's a, a process that is mimicked very many uh, in many many models around. So it's it's just about um, doing the right kind of footwork, uh, doing the analysis, get coming up with the hypothesis, uh, testing hypothesis, and then. Again, evaluating on the results and coming up with a new hypothesis. So it's it's really much uh, the same iterative process as as you see uh, otherwise. Uh, could you tell us a bit more of the about the details of this process? Maybe on the analysis phase before you even test the hypothesis, before you even have a hypothesis. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's a crucial phase, uh, and and to me, it's really about as you all already know, I'm I'm very 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 into neuroscience and uh, psychology and social science and things like that. And well, what really strikes me. And what starts me off always is to try to engage any process looking at it holistically, looking at it from more angles and and look at it because I want to understand how the user on the other side is, what kind of process he's going through. Because there's a lot of difference whether you are there to uh, to make a decision about buying a house or you're there to make a decision about filling out a form for moving whole factory or if you're there just to to improve your own skills and fill out a form or to buy a book or something like that there's really a mountain of difference and you're in that situation and I'm trying to to decipher that situation as uh, one of the first and uh, along that, of course, things like uh, data analysis, uh, behavior analysis, uh, using Google Analytics is always uh, one of the first steps. Just to find out whether there are areas that are more in need of focus than others compared to the critical needs of the organization or the, the project, but also getting really close to the client and the ones that are close to the goals of that project. Meaning if this is a client that wants to sell things online, then it's really, really important to get as close to the customer they have. Meaning if they have a support department or whether they have a forum where people can write or an email or chat or something like that, it's actually very useful to getting that kind of information. And I always tell the clients that you don't need to pick between what you need, what you want to tell me. You just tell me everything, everything that comes to mind. You tell me and I'll just, I'll, 
I'll decipher that and I'll try to figure out what is most important out of that. Because if I just approach a client saying, well, tell me what the pain is of your website, tell me what the pain is of your users, then they are already prone to trying to figure out what I'm trying to get them to say. And that doesn't work very well to get the knowledge behind it because there's always this um, hidden knowledge in any organization and it's not utilized because people don't know just how important that little piece of information is when you look at it from a user perspective. So I'm always kind of this taking the action of getting as much information as possible from the client, whether that is meetings or tons of emails or uh, segmentation analysis they've done through a, a bureau or something like that. I'll, I'll get all the information and I'll decipher that in, in order to try to find the pains and gains of, uh, of this particular decision process. Great. How, how does this relate to psychology and neuroscience? Yeah, well, well it's because actually, um, yes, psychology and neuroscience is very, very close, meaning that it's all about the brain. And psychology has been around for a lot more time than neuroscience has, and therefore psychologists and thinkers and philosophers before that were all about focusing on why people do stuff because it's a fundamental thing when we when we look at our our brain because if there's one thing you can say about the the brain it's that it's a prediction engine all that it does is actually try to make the best possible prediction from the sensory inputs that it gets and it gets a lot of inputs every second it gets a lot of inputs millions uh, of inputs and it has to create a process where it can do that without actually stunning uh, a person you're not much effective if if you just stand there trying to make sense of all this input so it does this by applying heuristics uh, rules of thumb, if you call it that. And it collects those uh, inputs and runs it uh, automatically through these heuristics and, and it collects, uh, creates a rep representation of the world, a perception, which means that all we ever see and all we ever act on is really not what you can call a correct representation of the world, it's just how we perceive it. So there's really something behind the notion that perception is reality because it's actually just a matter of our brain interpreting all of the massive amount of uh, stimuli that it receives every second. And what we know is that we are actually very bad at recollecting this emotional state. We're very bad at talking about how we were feeling or how we were and why we did stuff because when when this stimuli access us we react and when we react then some of it is uh, is memorized and some of it is uh, is just lost forever and when we go back then we try to create this uh, memory as if it were right now uh, and we're very bad at that we are even worse at recollecting the emotional states that we were in when we had those uh, memories or uh, 
or stimuli. And, and th that actually means that we are very, very bad at predicting the future state of our emotions. And that relates very much to conversion rate optimization because whatever we do when, when we have a landing page or if we have a, a, a website, if we want people to decide, then they have to perceive this as being the right decision to do. And this is really about optimizing how people perceive or how people react or how the brain uh, associate different types uh, words and designs and, and contrast and all that. It's really just a massive machinery that we are just trying to understand. And throughout this, if you go back to, uh, to this perception, then it's not all about that there are some emotions and there are some heuristics that we place more value to. We are instantly overemphasizing the role of uh, bad emotions, for instance, things that can put us into danger. It's just an evolutionary product of these uh, tens of thousands of years that the brain has evolved. So it's not a democratic voting system, if you can say that, that uh, all emotions are equal. There are a lot of uh, bad emotions that gain more weight in our decision process simply because they, if they are right, if the predictions they make are correct, then it can have much larger implications for us as human beings. And therefore, we are more inclined to to go with the negative uh, emotions. And a second thing is that it's to a very, very large extent, and especially when we are talking about landing page optimization and conversion rate optimization, those kind of decisions are hugely unconscious. Uh, I know it's a bit of a, a no-no and it's, uh, it goes against a lot of the principles that we live by because we have a notion to ourselves that we have we are largely in control and actually we are, but we don't like the, the notion that, that a lot of our decisions are totally controlled by the unconscious processes going on in the brain. And growing more and more fond of a one-liner that I just uh, read uh, a few days ago or weeks ago that just said that when making decisions, we think less than the, we think we think. And it's a very uh, captivating way of describing it that we actually think that we think more about what we do than we actually do. And that, that is also because we are very used to uh, rationalizing everything. Everything has a rational. Every decision has a rational explanation, uh, but it's, it's post-rationalizing. It's actually not anything that can uh, affect a decision. Decision is very much made up based on these heuristics. Of course, you can, uh, the, the conscious part of your brain can, is the executive. It can uh, alter your, your attention. It can shift your, your goals. It, it can do a lot of things. So, so you are in control of the goal orientation. Sometimes I refer to it as if you were going somewhere in your car, then you make the decision of where to go, to the mall, to the movies, or to your vacation house, and that's your goal. 
how you get there is a matter of a lot of decisions you make. And it's very much depending on the environment that you're in. If there's a traffic jam or if there's a, you have to figure out a route where you've never gone before, then everything is suddenly new and you have to try to figure out whether you go left or right or something like that. But if you've been there before, then it's just easy. You just say, well, you go right, then you go left, then you drive a little longer, and then you go right again. There's no effort to it, but you have the goal in mind and you can shift the goals. And this, it's this kind of process that is very, very important when talking about conversion rate optimization because this goal orientation is very much depending on, again, the holistic view, how you view and what, what your intentions are. And those differ. Uh, there are people that are going to buy your product just about no matter what you do with them. Uh, of course, if you remove the buy button, then it's impossible. But there are people that are just in a situation where they just have to fulfill this and they will convert. And then there's a lot of other people that aren't going to convert because they have a longer decision process or you're just the first uh, website out of several they're going to visit within the next 10 minutes. So they're just browsing, they're just information search. Um, so understanding that this is not necessarily a one hit you have to create here, but understanding that you, when you structure your website or your landing page is about understanding what are the natural evolutionary basics of how you perceive things and how can you build upon them? How can you remove the stones on the path that you're on? And how can you motivate and uh, engage people into doing things? Okay, that's quite an interesting perspective and I would tend to agree. On a more practical level, I mean, knowing that uh, all the things that you already mentioned, how do we somehow get that information out of hard data like analytics? Well, again, it's, it's, it's a matter, if you have a, I'm not saying that you have to have the perfect view of the decision process before you even start, but if you have a, a rough sketch on how motivated uh, are people, what are they there to do, is this a long decision process, is this a short decision process, then when you look at data and when you look at uh, Google Analytics and you see the choices that they make, and if you, for instance, a good example is if you have a menu, if you have a right menu or top menu, and, and you're looking at landing pages here. If you have a high click rate to a category or a menu or something that sticks out in the, in the behavior of saying, well, if you were to click on a CBC advert and you land on a landing page, why are you the most clicking on this link? What is the wording of that link? What are associations uh, that, are, that could be linked to this? Because what we also have to understand is that we are creating associations all the time. And one of the things that I'm very fond of is the availability heuristics, which is a shortcut or a way to describe how we make shortcuts, cognitive shortcuts from information that is far from filled. There's an example in a study where where people were, were given 14 names of uh, female 
celebrities and 14 names of uh, uh, male celebrities. They didn't know that uh, how many were of each. They were just asked to remember these uh, celebrities. And at the end, they were asked whether there were more female or male names in, in that list. And because the tests were skewed that way that the male celebrities were more known than the female, more people said that there were more male celebrities in that list than female. And that is the availability heuristics right there, that if you, based on the information that you recollect, the memory that is not correct or not a, a real representation of the actual fact, but if your memory is that there were more male because you remember more of them or you have a feeling that, that this is a bigger portion, then you would say that there were more male celebrities even though there weren't. And that's, of course, that's uh, a stretch to conversion rate optimization, but, but I want to say if you have links or if you have promises uh, of other pages that uh, direct the wrong associations for people based on what their needs are, then you would see this kind of thing in their behavior. You would see abnormalities or choices that are uh, not the way you want to shape them. But you have to understand that they, they do this for a reason. They go back for a reason. They uh, click on your logo for a reason. They have a perception of what is going to happen when they do this. And if you don't follow through on this perception, then they would be less motivated to actually go around finding your information or trying it. So, so really it's about shaping these perceptions, making use of the data to find out what kind of behavior, what kind of associations, what kind of uh, perceptions could be the reason for this. And then you hypothesize based on that and you, then you test them. Awesome. So basically, we're trying to read the mind of the customer, in a sense. Yeah, well, you, you can go too far as well, because, of course, in a, in a perfect world, you'll be able to do a one-on-one -on -one communication. But of course, you can't, and we are so different. So we can't rely on the, the external environment just uh, spilling coffee uh, down somebody's uh, neck while they're browsing your website and therefore they have to abort their, their decision. We can't do all that, but we can try to be better at understanding that there are some similarities between us, but there are also a lot of differences. And if we, if I have any one advice, it would be that it's always better to take an action or take take a stand in something, be precise, be decisive about something rather than be decisive about nothing and just saying, well, it's all up to you. Because one thing that you can be totally sure about is that they are, the users are not going to have the same picture of your website or your landing page if you don't try to guide them, if you don't try to create or at least um, shape this perception. Yeah, that's very true. And very often I come across this. But people, at least clients, my clients anyway, they don't, or people I talk to, they don't really understand how much a guiding hand can influence decision. I guess it's not something so intuitive. Uh, what do you think about the guiding hands as in a, a direction of cue? So for, for example, like, you know, they love their sliders on their homepages. And I tell them like, you, you cannot 
have so many elements on the homepage. You you know you have, have a direction that you have to guide the visit visitor towards. Yeah, well, well, actually, slider is one thing. Uh, I know there are a few conversion rates specialists that also says that sliders are bad, and I I tend to agree with that. But I actually sometimes love sliders, not because they increase conversions, and I'm only saying this in the beginning of the the phase, the data analysis phase, because actually sliders can many times give good clues to what captivates people, because. Many sliders are referring back to what I said before, take a stand. Many sliders have very easy to understand directional communication in them, although they have a lot of images that slide and slide and slide. But what you can see behavior-wise is that many times people try to seek back to the slide that actually got their attention. And what sliders do is that they, they tend to grab this attention and yes, it's bad, decision-making because it takes them from what what goal orientation they had before and kind of whisper that out and replace it with this notion of what could be in the next slide and, and what is going to happen and things like that. So from a sense of a behavior, I, I tend to like sliders, but... <laughs> I don't recommend using them and I don't use them when, when I actually propose changes or things like that because there's a cognitive trap right there uh, in terms of totally shifting people's attention and getting them uh, annoyed that things are changing, sliding away from what they're saying. So um, slide is a, is a good example of something that is really good at weeding out attention and what people are interested in, but they are not so good at actually shaping or moving or uh, motivating decision. Awesome. So let's move on from that kind of essentially creating a hypothesis and testing, uh, creating a hypothesis from maybe trying to think about how the visitor is thinking to creating a hypothesis. Then we run the test. So I understand you have some um, thoughts on A-B testing. Could you share us share with us a bit more? Yeah, well, um, I like A-B testing. I, I still think that it's the best possible tool that we have for iterative knowledge because we are able to rather quick or at least quicker than other stuff get to a point where we can use this knowledge and I, I say that because I've run a lot of A-B split tests and I know that there are people that are saying that you can't use them because statistics are skewed and you have ever-changing uh, user base, you have uh, seasonality, you have all of these factors. And yes, they do tend to have a lot of impact. It does make a lot of impact where uh, you test in one, uh, one uh, week apart from another. And that's also why I tend not to focus too much on how great the lift were, but that there were a lift or there were not a lift because it does still split the traffic momentarily 50-50 from one to another. So in that moment, you are seeing the changes that you are seeing in the statistics. So I, I think that is still the best possible tool for an iterative process where you want to gain knowledge and you want to understand uh, what is driving your users to do what 
they're doing. And another thing, because I have this behavioral, what you can fetish, um, then I like A-B split testing because if you show people two different pages and the only thing you change is those pages, otherwise the traffic is the same and everything. If you look back and you divide those two greatest segments and see the difference in click paths, in behavior, in time, in general, as I said, perception, reality, how their behavior changes, then it gives you a really, really good understanding of why one page is doing things good or bad or not at all. So I actually, I'm fond of A-B split testing because I think still it's the best tool. And I know there's, uh, there's also things like multi-armed banded approaches and things like that. And I'm, I think that they are very interesting, but it's, it's very consuming. It's a much larger project if you, if you take that road. And it's not necessarily something that you can iteratively use in order to gain knowledge and post that knowledge back to the website. And something that I'm very fond of is not only to give knowledge to the to the about the website but actually also dispersing this knowledge into the organization of that company because a lot of things can be simply diverged into the organization and they get a better understanding of the customers that they have and that can help uh, on very many, many levels not only on the online or website level so but when it comes down to a second thing about A-B split testing and something that I am <laughs> sometimes tend to be a very, very criticizing, angry old man, sometimes I feel like that because I feel that when people are using these split tests to say that they've gained, they created a gain, they're not always as uh, restrictive about the statistics behind it, or at least they are not aware of the fact that if they don't run it for a long enough period, then the effects are not going to last, or they're not going to be able to prove that effect uh, half a year from now. And I'm not saying the gain, but in percentage, but at least that this is better than the other because you will always have extremists in the start. You will always have other really good or really bad or nothing at all from the beginning. And the real challenge is knowing when things are good or bad or whether you can stop now or go on. And I, I think when, when people are at least showing their results, they're not always as um, perfectionistic as I am in terms of the data behind it, the statistics behind it. And that dates back, I think, to uh, the time before I was a conversion rate specialist, where I had to be sure that when I uh, delivered data on a statistic point of view, I would be uh, very much criticized if I hadn't thought about getting away from the law of small numbers and things like that, seasonality. And so it's really not just about believing that lift, even though I'm also very, very fond of big numbers. And I like it when a test is, is uh, really showing uh, a big lift and, and things like that. But you have to be objective. And I have a, an example of that. We ran a, a test a week or two ago 
for a company. And on that product page, we actually tested emphasizing uh, a feature of Loop. It's an online bookstore. And looking into the book and have a preview of the book, we actually tested that to emphasize people getting them to engage in the in the in the process of, of reading that book um, and and that was the hypothesis that if we were able to uh, make more people use this feature then we will have a conversion rate gain and we ran the test and it actually showed that there was at least if we had ra- uh, run it further then we would probably have ended up being able to show that there was uh, a statistical uh, lift in this in this test, but when we look back at the behavior, we could see that people weren't using this feature. And if they weren't using the feature, then that wasn't the reason why we had a lift in conversion. So you have to be critical to your own hypothesis and your own statistics and and the test that you run. There's a notion in, in movie making that says you have to kill your, your darlings. And it, it's very much so here that you have to be aware that you're just human and you make cognitive errors and, and you are uh, able to, to have the wrong perception of this test as well. So you have to have higher standards and you have to be critical about it and you have to see more than just one picture. The total of the behavior data has to at least point in the same direction. Otherwise, you're not creating the game that uh, you are thinking that you are. Okay, that's interesting insight. Oh, I'm just going to give a couple of, um, of my personal opinion on this. It's a strong opinion, but I don't like it when all these tools that are coming out is makes, makes A-B testing really simple. But it distracts away from statistics. So they have this nice software. It comes out with a nice graph. But people don't understand what it actually means. I think it's really important to know what it means and understand a bit of like how is this derived. And if you take it a bit further, stuff like how is the environment affecting your the validity of the test? I always say that, or at least I tell clients that there's no bad test even if it goes in the opposite direction of what we expect we learn something that maybe this is not such a great element to include in your landing page but if your test is invalid you know for example their external validity threads or for example you change the control which i don't know strangely enough people don't know that they're not supposed to change the control and i'm like well if that happens our data is rubbish so we cannot depend on it and that's that's really bad so it means we have wasted our time yeah well, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, and again, I don't know really how many uh, A-B split tests I run, but I think I stopped counting when I, uh, when I went above 500 or something like that. But there's only a handful that I would really say was, was uh, something that was just rubbish. Uh, seen from the point of view that they were technically bad uh, executed we weren't able to say something significant about the behavior or something that could be learned from this and that's actually also something that i use a lot of effort in explaining to the clients is that we will gain knowledge of course the main target is to drive up conversion click-throughs leads all that it's what we are all running for but in terms of understanding this iterative process, then it might take uh, three leaps where we take 
the knowledge we gained from seeing that the hypothesis were, weren't what we thought it were, but looking at the data, looking at the behavior, seeing how things changed just by changing the stuff we changed, we are able to uh, reevaluate the hypothesis and move further towards that goal. And that's actually where we see the most significant uh, lifts in clients. It's where when we are uh, able to, to get this iterative process really flowing. It's not just about selling this one lift to a client saying, well, you have one chance to do this. Of course, I understand that it's very apparent to, to a client that you also deliver. But if you're able to, just as with the users, if you're able to create a motiv more motivated, more engaged, more uh, inclined to decide audience, then it's, uh, it's a move in the right direction. And then you just have to move, a more, move some more stones, use some other words, understand that uh, the associative uh, engine uh, in, in this uh, particular user segment is different. About this multi-arm bandit, um, recently I've come across many, many people who are big fans of this multi-arm bandit method. I'm personally not supportive of uh, multi-arm bandit testing for the simple reason, oh, before we get too far into that, well, would you like to explain what multi-arm bandit testing is? Well, generally speaking, it's just an, uh, an endless test where you add and subtract uh, different versions and this multi-armed bandit is just is always dispersing, dispersing uh, the traffic, not 50-50, but based on the performance of that uh, version, meaning that if one version is better than uh, the rest, then it will get substantial more traffic. But every version is actually getting some traffic. So if that another version is starting to peak perform, then it will get more traffic. So it's, it's more of a, a continuous uh, traffic light, if you say it like that. And then, uh, of course, you will gain knowledge about what is trending and things like that. But yeah. So why are you not supportive of this multi-arm bandit system of testing? Well, from a statistical point of view, it's really good. I, I like the, the, the notion of this, but when you look at it from organizational point of view and, and what we see when we meet uh, organizations that don't really understand the whole, the whole conversion rate optimization process to begin with, this is a huge task because what AB split testing is doing is that it takes away effort from the organization saying, well, we can do this, we can test this, we can deliver knowledge, we can deliver results to you so that you can prioritize it in your IT department. What multi arm Bandit does is that it requires a whole lot of uh, IT development. It, it requires a continuous effort and that's fine, you can do that, but you have to think of it as a st strategical choice. You can't really just switch back and forth. You have to say, well, we want this. And if you have the IT, if you have the power to, to back this up and continue this and understand this and move this forward, then it can be a very powerful tool. But most organizations don't have that. 
Yeah, that's a very interesting take on it. Well, my personal opinion on this is I don't like it basically because it's too automated. The statistical back, the statistical method of having this kind of testing is it's very interesting. I, I do agree it's very interesting. It's very alluring because it's like to, in a, to a certain degree, push button simple, right? So you just throw it a number of variations, you push the button and it gives you the best and it op- continuously optimizes. But uh, there's some if you will, a validity thread because this machine does not know what's happening out there in the environment. So it might over-optimize and give too much impressions to a certain variation which might not be better and might not... The machine doesn't know what's happening in the in the real world. Maybe there's a news article somewhere that... Um, that reports something that's very correlated with one of the variations and suddenly that performs better. And maybe after this news event, nothing, you know, it, it goes down to a regular regular kind of conversion rate. But uh, the, this, this machine won't know. And I actually look forward to the day where, well, I can have push-button simple optimizations, but I don't think that that, that day is here yet. Well, well, we are optimizing human decisions, and therefore, uh, until we get to a point where we have algorithms and computers that are actually able to process more data than the human mind, and we are still a bit far away from that, then we don't have a chance to even think about uh, being able to to uh, to predict that way. But I have to say that that. Yes, I understand you in terms of you know, the machine is not able to to understand why things are happening, but that's also why why there needs to be people that are that are guiding this. So in that terms, it's not so much different from maybe split testing. It can be done wrong, but there's more uh, in in terms of this being able to uh, to get information flowing into the organization, get the organization. Um, involved in this iterative process, then multi-arm bandit is a little bit too automatic um, because it doesn't imply the that you have to understand why things are happening. You don't. You you shouldn't be trying to uh, put a label on on the spikes that are that are coming in. And as I said before, one of the takeoffs in this is that you can you can push knowledge back into the organization that they can use on one, many levels. And and if you don't do this post uh, test uh, evaluation and and behavior change uh, evaluation, then you're not able to to see this picture. So in terms of actually growing the conversion rate. I'm a little bit torn because multi-arm bandit statistically and technically should be the better option because all you should do is just feed it with all types of hypotheses without even evaluating and qualifying him. It will qualify it for you. So in terms of that, it should be technically uh, the better choice for optimization. But in terms of actually getting the organization involved and utilizing the many brains that are in that organization coming up with uh, silent knowledge and things they just, uh, their focus, their attention is, you won't get that. Great. I think that's a very valid point. So, well, do you have anything else to share regarding your process? If not, let's just move on to a couple of closing questions. I, I just have one little thing and um, 
If I, I again, I can't share the. I have the the, the client here that we, we ran this test for. Uh, I haven't uh, gotten the uh, final approval from them, but I wanted to just stress out the importance of attention and uh, attention in terms of different points in the process, decision process on a page. Because one of the biggest problems when looking at landing page optimization is whether should you have the form above the, the fold or below the fold? Should you have a bigger call to action button or should you have one or the other? And what we did here was that, first of all, we optimized the product page, again, selling books. And we optimized it very, very strictly to emphasize a lot on security. On there's, there's a, a security uh, way here that that's called Trustpilot, where people that actually bought things from the store can go in, evaluate, and tell other people how to do it, and they score it. And this particular store had a lot of really good reviews, huge quantity, and it's really a good point, meaning it would drive conversions. So what we did was that we created a version of the product page that emphasizes it. This we We tailored it to drive attention to this element that is very close to the call to action button. So in theory, we should be able to see the lift. When we ran the test, we found out that there was an inconclusive evidence. There wasn't good or bad. It didn't show anything. But what we did afterwards was that we um, hypothesized. Again, we looked at the behavior. We saw that we were right in terms of we had some changes in, in time on site and th things like that. And we did a new test where we used directional cues, we actually made this trust pilot fall out. It wasn't screaming for attention. It was actually being what you call it, attentional blurry from the point of view of the first millisecond seconds of a page. But what we did was we had directional cue to the actual call to action, meaning that when this call to action comes into attention, meaning when you are as far in your decision process that you start to locate the call to action button, you're ready to put something into the basket. Then the trust pilot or the, the security version kicked into attention and we saw a huge lift. And that to me shows a really good example of things that might, you know that they are going to uh, move the decision process. But if you think in layers and in time, on your page, then you are better off than just thinking that the page is analyzed from the first get-go and never analyzed again, because it's an, uh, you're constantly changing your attention and your perception and your view, the, the physical view is actually not as good as we think uh, we are seeing. So a lot of things we simply don't uh, see on a page. Yeah, I think that's pretty true. In this case, how did you emphasize the trust pilot area when it's near the call to action button? Do you make it move or something? No, we used, uh, we utilized uh, an attention the tool that uh, predicts uh, how much attention that the whole page is saying. So we optimized for attention and gaze and things like that. Which tool is this? We used a tool called I2D2 or Neural Heat Map, but there's also uh, iQuant and uh, Attention Wizard, Feng Wei, 
M2, I think, also has this uh, attention tool. If there's just one takeaway from everything you just mentioned, what would that be for our listeners? You have to look at this from a holistical point of view. I, I know I haven't uh, talked about this, but uh, try to Google five uh, levels of decision-making, uh, which is uh, five dimensions uh, in a decision process that is, or at least helped me a lot, where you understand that it's not just about uh, one page. It's, it's, uh, it's a larger process where you recognize your need you uh, search for information, you evaluate your alternatives, also your competitors or alternatives within the page, and you perform the purchase, and then you post-purchase evaluate, meaning how did it all go. And I think the one thing that you should take away from all this is that when you have a page, whether that is an eShop or a landing page or a lead generator, then you have to take uh, charge of the decision, decision process, meaning let's, let's uh, illustrate it by, let's say you have three doors. You are putting your user in front of these three doors. If you have the same size doors, if you have the same color doors, if you have just one fluffy word to describe these doors, then you are saying to the user that they have to make up their own mind. But if you take the action to say, well, one of these doors are more important than the two others, we'll make this red, we'll make this blue, and we will have five words describing this door, then you are talking to the unconscious mind to saying, well, this door, we've made it bigger, we've made it a different color, we've taken the action of showing you this is more important than the rest. And this is a good uh, way of describing you have to show the user what you think is more important than the rest on your page and on your website. So by emphasizing one door, you don't expect all the visitors to go through that door anyway. It's more of, you have to think it this way. If you continue to have three doors, then they will pick one of them. And if that doesn't live up to their expectations, then they're going to assume that the two others are just as trashy as the first one. And if you have one door that you create a bigger than the rest, then you take, then it's not their decision. Then they don't feel obligated or they don't feel that, well, it's their decision, so they're the only one that's in fault of this. They can give you the, the blame for this, meaning that uh, psychologically, they would be more inclined to look at the other doors because they say, well, it's just you who don't know me. It's not me who don't know me. Is there a name for this effect? Uh, not that I know of as such. There, there might be... Uh, I've been making use of this uh, in, in pricing tables, basically. And it really works pretty good. It looks works pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that's the manifestation of it. But I'm I'm talking figuratively. It's also about um, whether you you choose one headline, how much you choose to emphasize in wordings and things like that. Uh, think about associations. Think what kind of big associations are linked to using these kinds of words. Where can people find out more about you or get in touch with you or your business? Yeah, well, Adcor is a Danish uh, agency, so if you are familiar with Danish, then you can go to adcor.dk. But you can also look me up on LinkedIn and contact me. We're 
about, I think we have 30 people, 30, 40 people in this agency. So it's not a small agency, but if you contact me, then I'll be sure to give your information to the right people so that they can get in touch with you. Awesome. Thanks for your time today. I really appreciate the in-depth insight into everything conversions. Thank you for listening to the Conversions Podcast. Please leave us a review and rating on iTunes if you enjoy our podcast. We love hearing from you. Connect with us at our website, conversionspodcast.com, and let us know what you think.